My old teacher at Virginia used to use the phrase, you surrender to your talent. You let your talent take over. You would not be in a position to do that negotiation, to play that recital, to serve that championship point if you didn't have some skill already. Can you surrender to that? Can you let that take over? Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harshaw Jr., and today I bring you Dr. Nate Zinzer. Dr. Zinzer is the Director of Performance Psychology at West Point. This is the most comprehensive mental training program in the country. He's been there since 1992. He's helped prepare cadets for leadership in the United States Army. He's also been a sports psychology mentor for people like two-time Super Bowl MVP Eli Manning for the NHL's Philadelphia Flyers, for lots of Olympians, lots of NCAA champions. He's also been a consultant with the FBI and with the Fire Department of New York. He's just an elite performer himself, but he coaches all of these elite performers. And he published his book just recently titled The Confident Mind, A Battle-Tested Guide to Unshakable Performance. I got the uncorrected proof in advance and I read through it. It was absolutely fascinating. This book, I promise you, will no doubt 100% guaranteed create new NCAA champions, Olympians, uh, millionaires, I guarantee will be coined because of people reading this book. Hands down, guaranteed, you got to read this thing. No matter if you're trying to improve in your health, in your relationships, in your business, in sales, it doesn't matter. The tools and tactics that he shares and the stories that he shares are going to transform you in any walk of life if and only if you use them. Now, I'm going to publish an episode in just a couple of weeks with a guy named Matt Onofrio. Matt is a real estate investor, and he went from $80,000 net worth to $125 million in just a few years. Listen, you may not believe that. It's like almost too hard to believe and wrap your head around it, but he, he reveals actually how he did it. It's a fascinating, fascinating story. A big part of that story is the mindset shift, the actual tactics that he did, some of the type of tactics that Dr. Zinzer talks about in his book, The Confident Mind. And I throw everything at Dr. Zinzer, and he has an answer for everything. So without further ado, let's get into it, my interview with Dr. Nate Zinzer of West Point. Man, your book absolutely blew me away. I uh, wish you would have written it about 30 years ago when I was in high school because I really could have used this. This book is going to result in people winning championships, people making a lot more money. It is a transformative book. So the first thing I want to ask you is this. You talk about the Eli Mannings of the world, the Arthur Ashes of the world, these world-class performers. And the interesting thing that you reveal is their mental struggles, like their self-doubt. And I thought world-class performers didn't have doubt. That is one of the great misconceptions about success in our modern world. We have this funny idea that, you know, if you've made it to a high level, you must have accomplished that through a nice steady upward trajectory from beginning to Super Bowl champion or corporate CEO status. All we see is that upward trajectory, and we never appreciate how jagged that overall upward trajectory actually was. You know, for so much of the time, 
the guided missile that is fired from one place getting targeted to a destination, most of the time that guided missile is off, actually off course, and it's in a constant state of self-correcting and self-correcting and self-correcting and self-correcting, and bang, it finally arrives at the target. Human performance is a lot like that. The misconception is that, oh, all these people had plenty of doubt, had plenty of insecurity at times about themselves. And the good news is that they learned how to deal with it. We tend to think that if you have a lot of success, well, there must have been tons of confidence all the time. But confidence is a very unstable, fragile, transitory state. It is not a constant trait that one has. So I think it's important for all of us to realize that that path towards success is never straight. It's full of deviations. And as long as you are continuing to strive to minimize the deviations, you're doing fine. Here's the challenge that I think most people have and maybe don't even realize it. They feel like I can do these course corrections just by working harder, right? For the athlete, they think, well, I'm just going to go to the weight room more. Or for the salesperson, they think they're just going to learn the product even better that they're trying to sell when there are these totally different tactics. And I want to talk about, we're going to talk about those tactics. I do really want to get some, some really tactical, practical, actionable things you share in the book. I want to get some of those before we wrap up here in a little while, but confidence. Most people only feel confident and allow themselves to feel confident when good things are happening. Like, how are we supposed to feel confident when things aren't going well? I don't think it's a question of how are we supposed to do it. I think it's the understanding and the realization that you don't have any choice but to decide to be confident, to decide to trust your whatever level of training, whatever level of competency you have achieved. You have no choice but to trust that if you actually expect to see it come out in the moment of truth. The thing that hangs up people is exactly as you say. We have to be successful before we can expect to be confident. We have to do all this work, and that work will automatically make us confident in ourselves. And that is a misconception. Yeah, you got to do the work, but you have to decide that the work that you have done is sufficient or is enough and can bring you to a point of success. You can do all the work you want, but if you still enter into the sales negotiation, into the game, into the concert, wondering if you indeed have done enough or telling yourself, daggone it, I should have done more. I hope he doesn't ask any questions on chapter seven because that's the one I didn't emphasize quite as much as I did chapters one through six. Then you are in a state of insecurity, in a state of uncertainty, and that is going to interfere with your ability to see what is happening in the moment, to have your unconscious mind instantly recall all the correct experiences in your past, and then to have the right directions, the right instructions sent out to your hands, your feet, or your mouth, depending on what you're doing. So it's that decision to be certain about yourself 
at whatever level of competence you happen to have. And I'd go so far as to say I'd much rather have a guy who's 80% competent, but 100% confident in his 80% than have a guy who's 90% competent, but is riddled with self-doubt. So we only see 50% of his or her 90%. So a key concept in your work is this first victory. Yes. What is that? As Sun Tzu put it, victorious warriors win first and then go into battle while losing warriors go into battle and then hope to win. The first victory is achieving that sense of certainty about oneself. That's the first victory you win. If you win that first victory, you got a much better chance of winning on the second, third, fourth, and all the other things that are going to show up on the score sheet, that are going to show up on the annual report. The words that we use are very powerful. And you went as far as saying in the book that the statements and stories that we tell ourselves influence our biology. That's really another little understood and even less valued concept. Okay. There's so much interesting research, and I quote some of it um, in the Confident Mind book about simply changing the story that you tell yourself about yourself. One of the studies that I looked at very carefully came out of Harvard, where groups of hotel maintenance workers, the ladies that wash the bathrooms and change the sheets and make the bed and vacuum the floors, a group of them were instructed to think about their daily work as exercise, because it it's active. It's maybe not like running eight or 10 miles a day, but it's a considerable amount of movement. And this group was encouraged, trained to repeat to themselves, I'm getting good exercise. I'm getting good exercise. I'm getting good exercise. Whereas a control group doing the exact same amount of work to the exact same level of intensity weren't given those instructions. And it turns out after a couple of months of doing so, the group that had been instructed and had been practicing this kind of affirmational self-talk they found they, they lost weight, their blood pressure dropped. Something about just affirming that they were getting exercise somehow activated their metabolism, so they're actually burning more calories, and they're exercising their heart. Quite remarkable. Quite remarkable. So you take the same people doing the same things, you change the language that they're using with themselves, and there are physiological changes that happen. I mean, that is mind-blowing. That, that is mind-blowing. I think maybe the most impressive piece of research that I came across in the course of doing the book was from another book entitled Endure, The Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance, where a world-class distance runner recounted his own experience in college having a sports psychologist tell him that he should be talking to himself in very optimistic terms while he is training and racing, hang tough. You can hold this pace. This is great. And as an undergraduate, this guy just sort of laughed it off because everybody knows that, you know, your mind has nothing to do with your body. Um, and the only thing that makes a difference is who's got the biggest set of lungs and the best trained muscles. But then this fellow went on a 30-year odyssey of studying human performance, nutrition, 
training habits, equipment, and yes, indeed, psychology. And he came across some research done out of South Africa where very well-trained cyclists, competitive cyclists, were trained in this kind of motivational self-talk. And the researchers looked at their time to exhaustion on a stationary bike. You go all out for as long as you can. You go all out. How long does it take you to exhaust yourself? They tested these guys initially. They divided them again into an experimental and into a control group. The experimental group was taught how to practice this kind of motivational self-talk while the other group was not. I think it's two months later. They're both retested. And the group that was practicing the motivational self-talk, I'm assuming that their training regimes in the meantime were pretty darn similar, well-controlled for the amount of training that they did. But the group that had practiced this motivational self-talk showed an 18% improvement in their time to exhaustion and lower ratings of exertion in the process. Who wouldn't want an 18% improvement? You know, batting average, shooting percentage, sales completed. 18% is pretty darn significant. So the writer of this book reflects, and at the very end of the book, he says, if I could go back in time and tell my younger self one thing about how to be a better competitor, I would tell them to engage in this kind of constructive self-talk. I would do it diligently, do it thoroughly, because it makes a huge difference. It is uncanny, the levels and levels and levels at which just shifting your mindset affects your body. Respiratory, neurological, endocrine, circulatory, all of these physical systems are affected by the way you talk to yourself about yourself, the stories that you repeatedly tell. Every listener is listening to this podcast because they, they want to get better, right? They're, they've dealt with some failure. They're looking for tactics for success. And, you know, they're trying to optimize their day, be more efficient. And for the listener, I'm talking to you right now. You don't have to learn another skill, read another book, listen to another podcast, get another certification. If you just took what you have right now, which is some level of competence, right? Competence. And you apply what Dr. Zinger's talking about, you will make jumps. You will make leaps. I mean, now if you continue to learn and all that, that that's great too. But everybody wants to get better and we're busy doing and doing and doing and not paying attention to this critical piece. One of these critical pieces is, is this cycles. Okay. You talk about the cycles in the book, like the sewer cycle or the success cycle. Can you talk about that? Because for the runner who's thinking, hang tough, hold this pace, that's maybe a different cycle than could be happening otherwise, like the sewer cycle versus the success cycle. Can you talk about those cycles? Okay. Well, the, the runner who is saying, hang tight, long strides, you've got this, it's easy, keep going, is literally changing blood flow, muscle tension, hormone production in a constructive direction, which is going to improve his or her time over a given distance. The runner who is saying, I don't know if I can handle this. This pace is really hard. God, I'm kind of, I'm beginning to hurt here. He or she is going to 
also affect blood flow, muscle tension, hormone production, but it's going to be affected in the opposite direction, okay? That person will be producing more cortisol, which is the primary stress hormone, whereas the person who's saying, hang tough, you can handle this, keep it smooth, enjoy this as much as you can, that person is going to be, you know, generating a few more endorphins, you know, pain reliving neurotransmitters that are produced in the drugstore between our ears. It's a very powerful process. And you're either going to be on one of those cycles or the other. There really isn't a neutral ground. And the reality is that most of us, even high achievers, are going to flip from one cycle to another cycle and back many times throughout the day. But it's just a matter of which cycle you're on most of the time. And especially which cycle are you on at the moment of truth? When you need to sustain your effort, when you need to sustain your focus, which cycle are you on there? Are you telling yourself, this is my opportunity. Let's see how well I can do this. Our team can get hot right now. Or are you telling yourself, we're in trouble right now. We've got to dig deep and find something bigger and try to motivate yourself through anger. And I guess the only other word I can think about is fear. You know, we better get it right or else, or, or, or we just lost our opportunity to qualify for the playoffs. I better make this deal or my quote is in trouble. How are you going to talk to yourself? Because the way you talk to yourself, the way you think is going to affect your emotional state. And that directly connects to all kinds of your physiology. And that, of course, because everything we do as human beings, we kind of do in this bag of skin that we occupy. It's going to affect our biology and it's going to affect our execution. Isn't this kind of delusional though, right? I mean, I know that's what some people think. Like, isn't this just kind of delusional thinking? You know, we hear about Deion Sanders, who you talk about in the book as a defender, as a cornerback, you know, covering uh, these wide receivers. When the ball went up in the air, he used to think to himself, like, that ball is for me. I mean, that's delusional thinking. Lady Gaga talked about, you know, in your book, and you use this example, like walking down the street, like she's the bomb, like she's the, she's the stuff before she was the stuff. Isn't that just delusional thinking? Yes, it is, but it's highly constructive and effective delusional thinking. When you really come down to it, Jim, nobody accomplishes anything that they have not done before without a degree of delusion. Okay. I think everybody here in this podcast had the experience way back when of succeeding with a difficult task of riding a two-wheeled bicycle without training wheels. Now, you had never done that before. And the first time you tried it, for some people, second time, third time, fourth time, tenth time, you veered out of control and you either wound up in a crash on the pavement or you found a way to escape the bike before it turned over. But yet there was this sense that it could be done. Wasn't that sense kind of delusional? You had never done it. You had a few concrete data points of you not being able to do it, yet there was this idea that it could be done. You saw some other folks do it. Mom and dad said you could do it. La, 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 la. You had a sense 
a little delusion about yourself that you could do something that you had never done before. And what a great moment it was when you finally freed yourself up and your cycling neurological software upgraded itself to the point where you were zooming down the sidewalk or down the driveway or down the street. That was a pretty great moment in the life of most kids. But it started, and it only could have started, with a certain degree of delusion. We all are delusional when we attempt things that we have never done before. Doesn't mean we're going to leap tall buildings in a single bound. For those of you who still remember the old Superman TV show culture reference, yeah, I know, I just dated myself. But the idea that, you know, you can make a team, that you can run a certain distance at a certain time, everything like that, every change starts out with a little bit of delusion. We're talking a lot about sports and sales, but it doesn't matter if you're trying to lose that 15 pounds that you haven't been able to lose or heal that relationship or get that promotion. I mean, this, this works in every, every arena of life. So Dr. Zinger, what about, what about if you fail though? Right. Okay. So I have this, this, this functional delusion and you know, I'm, I'm going through this, the success cycle and I'm saying all the right things. And I go, let's use the Deion Sanders example. I go and cover the defender. And for you, the listener, you might be saying, you know, trying to lose the 15 pounds or fix the relationship or whatever it might be, build the business. You go out and you try to cover the defender and boom, a touchdown's thrown right over top of your head. Now what? Now what? Exactly. Now what? That moment is a moment of truth for you to make a decision about what just happened. You can make the decision that something bad happened. That touchdown got scored. I didn't make my weight loss goal for the week or the month. I have to make a decision whether, in my mind, that setback is a permanent thing that's going to keep happening, whether it's a sort of all-pervading change in my life that's going to pop up in other areas, and whether that's really an accurate, truthful reflection of who I am. You have to decide whether you're going to think of those setbacks in terms of their permanence, in terms of their pervasiveness, and in terms of your personal agency in creating it, or will you look at that same setback, the touchdown, whatever it is, and say, yeah, it happened, but it just happened that one time. Yeah, it happened. But it only happened in that one particular place, that one particular space, that one particular situation. Yeah, it happened, but you know something that's really not a reflection of what I am capable of. It's not a true snapshot of the real me. You always have the choice about how you react to that failure, whether you see it as a permanent pervasive and personally identifying experience, or whether you see it as a temporary, limited, and non-representative experience. I instruct a lot of ball players, you know, especially the guys who have hockey and lacrosse sticks, to put a tape on the head of their stick where they are likely to see it, and with a big black magic marker write TLN, temporary, limited, not me. So that when they miss a pass, when they miss a shot, when something happens, TLN, temporary, yeah, it happened, but 
you know, it's just that one time. Limited. Yeah, it happened. Just in that one situation. Not me. I'm good to go. Making that kind of decision, using those three guidelines, lets you leave a mistake in the past where it belongs, lets you leave the mistake in one particular place where it belongs, and lets you move forward with a little more energy and a little more optimism. These are learned skills, by the way. Try them out. Be patient with them. Get better at it. A little compassion toward yourself because you're not going to be perfect at it right off the bat. We live in a society where we are basically defined by our limitations and our inadequacies. Uh, And I'm asking people to swim against the stream, be a little bit different in the way they respond to life's inevitable setbacks and to inevitable human imperfection. Failure is part of it. Failure is not just part of it. Failure is an inevitable part of it. And one other point that's really important is Let's understand that because failure is a part of it, because it is an inevitable part of it, it's going to get everybody, not just you. And if you can respond to your setbacks a little bit more constructively than your opponent, than your competitor, than your rival does, because he or she's going to experience a lot of the same setbacks and difficulties that you're experiencing, if you respond to them, a little more temporary, a little more limited, a little more non-representative than they do, then you have an advantage. And you got to be pursuing that personal advantage for yourself. Quick interruption. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to get the notes, quotes, and links in the action plan from this episode. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. That's jimharshawjr.com slash action to get your free copy of the action plan. Now back to the show. For the listener, how many how many people you think actually do things like this? Like the they put TLN on their stick, right? Hockey or lacrosse? Not not many people do that. Like, but who does that? It's it's the ones that are performing at the higher level. Like, well, the more you pull back the curtain on these world class performers, on high level performers, the more you realize like they're doing these little things. Like, this is what it takes to get there. You have to listen to this episode and buy the book and embrace this and actually. Actually do this stuff. Don't just go, oh, that sounds like a good idea for someone else. No, it's a good idea for you. And and Dr. Zinger, you mentioned perfection, right? You're not going to be perfect. And there is this striving for perfection, which is okay, right? Versus destructive perfectionism. What's the difference? And how how do we draw that line with ourselves? The point I advise people to, to focus on is that striving perfection is a wonderful thing. You know, and if we're in a sport, in an art, in a business, we should strive to do our level best. We should strive to be really, really as close to perfect as we can each and every time. But when we don't experience that perfection, when we don't reach that level of perfection, which is going to be a lot because all of us are flawed human beings and we're living in a flawed, imperfect physical universe, when we don't experience it, we forgive ourselves. We don't beat ourselves up over it. We say, okay, it didn't happen. Let's look forward to the next opportunity. This again is a learned skill. We all want to be perfect. We know we never are intellectually 
but what is our actual experience? What do we do to ourselves? How do we think when we do not experience the desired level of perfection? Okay. Do we beat ourselves up or do we let it go and look at, okay, how can I do it a little bit different? Am I curious about my imperfections? What information did this mistake or this moment of imperfect performance tell me about what I actually did? How might I correct that? So there's a level of, you know, we don't want to discount, ignore our imperfections. We want to kind of be curious about them. What's this telling me? There might be some good information in there. But if every time we experience a lack of perfection, we just get angry and disappointed, we miss out on all the learning potential that that experience might have for us. So that's success through failure right there. I mean, it's looking at the failure, learning from it effectively, and then also thinking, you know, TLN, right? And moving past it and, and using the right language to ourselves and being giving ourselves grace and going, nobody's perfect. I mean, I saw a list one time, Dr. Zinzer, of the top 10 worst performances by an NFL quarterback. And Peyton Manning is on that list, as is Joe Namath, the greatest of all time, had the worst performances of all time. How about that? I was watching Tom Brady last couple weeks ago. Here is the greatest of all time. Okay. In the course of the game, he threw four really bad passes. I mean, he just put it right into the turf and at the feet of a wide open receiver, you know, and it was not the receiver's fault. That guy ran the right route, but Big Tom, the greatest of all time, he misses a few. I think he's probably pretty good at forgiving himself. Uh, I don't think he would have lasted this long if he hadn't. So we learn from this failure. We adjust, we improve from our imperfections. And you gave an example of what Tony Gwynn did in his Hall of Fame baseball career. Can you talk about that? Sure. I came across this story in a Sports Illustrated article many, many, many years ago, and it really impressed me. It, it was a great example of a guy who was willing to look at himself, absorb the best in himself, and then once he had learned from his mistakes or inadequacies, he systematically eliminated, let go of the memory. So he had cameras in the stadiums where he was playing, and they were filming his at-bats. So he could have, you know, have one down the first baseline, one down the third baseline, one from the center field perspective. He could get all this information about his performance in the batter's box. And at the end of the game, he'd look at all these tapes and he would separate them. He would edit his good at-bats looking at whether he hit the ball or whether he didn't, whether he made a good decision to go for a pitch or whether he made a good decision to lay off a pitch. So he separated all of these at-bats into three different, this was back in the days of video cassettes, folks. He would separate these all these at-bats into three different video cassettes. One is, okay, good hits with the ball, good execution. A second one is good decisions. A third one was bad decisions. And once he's identified those bad decisions, he just takes that cassette and dumps it in the trash because he does not want to remind himself. He does not want to look at himself, basically acting like a fool swinging at a curveball when he shouldn't. 
All right. So it's that ability to filter, discriminate. I'm going to take what is useful. I'm going to see what I did wrong. I'm going to learn from it. And once I've learned from it, bang, it has no value. I get rid of it. I dump it. I delete it from the psychological hard drive. Man, Dr. Zinzer, the number of times that I watched in slow motion over and over and over of myself taking a bad shot on the wrestling mat and reinforcing how bad I was at taking that shot, uh, it's incalculable, the, the impact, negative impact. Yes, the negative impact that it has. You know, this story is not in the Confident Mind book, but I recommend it to all your listeners. There's this wonderful movie back in the mid 80s called Best of Times, starring Robin Williams and Kurt Russell, who played on the same high school football team. And the movie takes place some 10, 12, 15 years after their high school career. And there's a scene right at the beginning of the movie where Robin Williams, you know, now in his mid 30s as a professional, is watching an old black and white movie reel of this incredibly important high school football game that he just happened to get into at a key moment. And Kurt Russell is the golden boy quarterback, has lost this beautiful 60-yard pass. He has dumped it right into Robin Williams's hands. And as Robin Williams says, yes, it was a perfect ball, but that son of a gun dropped it. And then you actually see Robin Williams in this darkened room, playing with this reel-to-reel old-fashioned movie projector, going, I was that son of a gun. And the idea of him hanging on to that memory, hanging on to that memory, hanging on to that memory over you know more than a decade, basically defining his sports career by that one error. It's so funny how we tend to do that in this society. It's not necessary. It's not helpful. And you don't have to do it anymore, folks. You get to define yourself by your accomplishments. You get to define yourself by your potential. You get to define yourself in so many other ways besides the one that got away. If I only had, I could have, I would have, I should have. Okay, that's your choice. You can think about yourself in in that way if you so choose. But I would only ask you, how's that working for you? What's the result of that? Does that help you now in the clutch? Does that kind of thinking help you? You know, you really got to be honest with yourself. Is the quality of your thinking about your profession consistent with the level of success that you rationally would like to achieve? Does your way of thinking help you execute when it's time for you to execute? Absolutely. I've got one more conceptual question here that I want to get to tactics because at this point, if you're a listener and you've not bought into this, then you should probably just uh, go to a, another episode. But this stuff is gold. And so I want to talk about one more concept and then get to really like tactics because it's easy to like go, oh, this sounds great. But like now what? After I'm done with this episode, I go back to my email inbox or back to my house or back to wherever I go. Like, what do I do? Right. So, what are the tactical things? And you talked about some of these in the book. But one more conceptual question here is this. You talk about thinking this through, right? Thinking it through, doing this sort of conscious level work that we're talking about. But we can also overthink. And you talk about the the execution of any skill, especially complex ones, 
goes more smoothly when we suspend all forms of conscious, deliberate thought. How are we supposed to suspend that thought? And maybe just talk about the concept of suspending that thought and, and just, just doing, right? Just, just being in the moment and just doing and bringing all of our skills to bear versus like thinking through the thing that we want to do, whether it's covering the receiver or making the sales pitch or running the race or whatever it might be. Okay. Well, first, conceptually, it's important to understand the concept. Okay. We all do remarkably complicated things without thinking about them, without analyzing what we're doing as we are doing it. Uh, we drive a car in traffic. We uh, lace up a necktie. We tie our shoes. We do all kinds of things that really require sophisticated levels of coordination without talking ourselves through every step. And it's possible for us to do a sales negotiation, to play a piano recital, to play a tennis match with a lot of that same unconscious competence. So I think it's really important that people just get the idea that your unconscious intelligence is a heck of a lot smarter than your conscious, well-educated, upfront brain. You need to use that upfront brain to learn how to do something. But once you've learned how to do something, you can drop it down to the unconscious and you can now just look and do, sense and react. So to make it more practical, what's important is to just to find one thing to lock your eyes, to lock your senses into. One simple thing. If I'm giving a talk to a large audience, my point of focus is just this large swath of people in an auditorium. I am not consciously thinking about my next talk. I'm just putting my focus out there into the crowd. If I am about to serve a tennis ball, I'm only thinking about that corner of the service court that I want to put the ball into. I'm going to choose a very small target. And then I'm going to tell myself, okay, let's see how well I can do this. And then I'm going to take a breath and I'm just going to focus my eyes, my senses on that one small target. And at that point, it becomes an intangible process of just trusting the mechanics that I've rehearsed and built in. Yeah. Trusting, letting go. I remember when I learned that concept when I was wrestling and, and for me, I was an overclassic overthinker and I remember, and this is something I still use today preparing for talks and instead of being in the arena, I would step out and I would actually read a newspaper, find something else to read just to get my mind off of it, to allow my mind to turn off because I knew that I knew I could switch it on. We have to have that conscious competence, right? I knew that, or unconscious competence. Like, and like, I knew that I, I had that in me and I could just turn it on whenever I needed to. I did the warm up, I did everything I needed to do, reviewed the film, et cetera. Just allow yourself to go do it. And as a matter of fact, in the match of my life, the biggest match of my 17 year wrestling career is the all American round, the blood round at the NCAA championships, 15,000 people in the stands in the arena. And I've got to wrestle the fourth ranked wrestler in the country. I've never beaten anybody in the top five. I got to wrestle the fourth ranked guy from the university of Minnesota. They're ranked number one in the country. And knowing myself, I told my coach, I said, actually my assistant coach, Brendan Buckley, who is the uh, executive director of beat the streets wrestling in New York city. Now 
I said, Buck, you've got to have a joke ready for me. For whenever I step on the mat, literally like when I snap my headgear and I'm about to step onto the mat into the circle, you need to tell me a joke because you've got to cut the tension and get me out of thinking mode and into letting go mode and trusting myself mode. And, uh, and, and he did that and, uh, and it, it obviously worked out well for me. So I, I saw a wonderful video clip about three months ago about the recently desist drummer for the Rolling Stones, a guy named Charlie Watts. Now, the Rolling Stones were the biggest rock and roll band in the world for decades and decades and decades. And this wonderful little video clip shows Charlie Watts backstage in the moments before he's going to step onto the stage in some huge arena where tens, 20, 30, 50,000 people have all paid a hundred bucks to hear the Rolling Stones be absolutely bang on at their best. And Charlie Watts is just sort of dancing around. He's not talking to Keith Richards and Mick Jagger about how they want to do a particular change in a particular song. He's not the least bit focused on how he has to do something. He's just literally wiggling around backstage. It's almost comical to watch. And at some point, you can actually see Keith Richards in the same bit of film laughing at his drummer, Charlie Watts, who's basically being this huge goofball when he's about to step onto the stage and really have to perform. And for those of you who might be tempted to think that, okay, he's a drummer in a rock and roll band. How hard can that be? Let me tell you, folks, if you got to go on stage and be bang on sharp as a tack for two hours, and you got to do that 300 nights a year. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that's very demanding. So I really give old, the dearly departed Charlie Watts a lot of props for knowing how to take pressure off himself and to prepare himself to let the music take over. You allowed your wrestling chops to take over. My old teacher at Virginia used to use the phrase, you surrender to your talent. You let your talent take over. You would not be in a position to do that negotiation, to play that recital, to serve that championship point if you didn't have some skill already. Can you surrender to that? Can you let that take over? I know these concepts are somewhat abstract and they are challenging for most of the folks who grew up in this cultural system where we prize precision, details, more knowledge, more practice, thinking more seriously about yourself. But really, ladies and gentlemen, give it a lot of thought. How well is that working for you? And how well have you performed in those rare moments when you might have just stepped out of yourself, let your competency take over, and be in the moment? Let's talk, wrap this up with some tactics. You know, so how do we, you know, and, and we've gotten a few already as we've gone through, you know, the, the writing of the TLN or whatever that is for you, for the listener, putting that on your computer or whatever it might be. Anything else? I know the, the top 10 list was something I really, that really resonated with me from the book, but um, can you give us uh, one or two more tactics? Sure. The top 10 list is just kind of where you begin in identifying behaviors, moments where you have indeed done well and being willing to give yourself credit for those. That process is kind of where this you know, repository of confidence can begin. But another tactic based on the same principle is 
looking back on your day. If you're an athlete, you look back on your practice. If you're a business person, you look back on your behavior of the day and you journal deliberately, pen and paper, you journal an episode of quality effort from that day. Where did you avoid procrastination? Where did you get something done that needed to get done? Where did you put in a moment or two of quality effort? That's an entry. That's a one or two line entry in a daily journal that you maintain for the purpose of winning your first victory. The second line in that is where you identify a small success or two. What did I get right today? Was it a particular effective interaction I had with a coworker? Did I hit eight out of 10 three-point shots in that particular drill in basketball? Did I finally get through the third movement of this particular piano exercise? What small thing did I get right? That's the second one, two, maybe three line entry. So, so far, this exercise has only taken you about two or three minutes. And then the third entry is, well, what do I seem to be getting better at? Where am I making progress? Am I indeed getting better at these kinds of interactions? Am I indeed getting better at communicating a vision to my team? Am I indeed getting better at completing the agility ladder or my deadlifting form in the gym? Jot down something that seems to be getting better. And if you are willing to look for these episodes of effort, these episodes of success, an indication of progress, if you're willing to look for it, ladies and gents, you're going to find it. It may be very small, but whatever you find when you ask yourself those questions, whatever you find is going to be helpful. So that is just your daily ESP, E for effort, S for success, P for progress. That is a very practical step, and that is something that you do five, six days a week. And in so doing, you build up a large repository of very constructive memories. And it's the willingness to do so that allows you to step up to the line of scrimmage, the podium, the stage, and know that, yeah, I've done a lot of things well. I've got reasons to believe in myself. We'll see. We'll hear a lot of people say, well, you got to believe in yourself. Well, what the heck do I believe in? Well, I believe in the fact that I did this effort. I believe in the fact that I got all these things right. I believe in the fact that I got better at this process and this process and this process. Now I've got something concrete to believe. Hmm. So, so there is a very operational tactic for you, Jim. Yep, absolutely. For the listener, we are scratching the surface. This book will change your life. And there's fascinating stories, fascinating tactics, real world examples, even more than we just shared here. I, I told Dr. Zinger, we're going to try and cram your whole book into 40 minutes. I think we did a pretty good job of getting a lot, but we're still just scratching the surface. Dr. Zinger, where can people find your book, find you, follow you, et cetera? NateZinser.com is where they can find me. This book can be pre-ordered right now, and it should be available just about everywhere. If you simply do a Google search for The Confident Mind, HarperCollins, you will come up with links that can take you directly to Amazon, directly to Barnes & Nobles. You can buy it from whichever vendor you so choose. Yep. It is everywhere as of the time we're publishing this. This book is everywhere books are sold. So you, I will have a link, of course, in the action plan, jimharshawjr.com slash action. Dr. Zinger, thank you for your time. Jim Harshaw, it is a pleasure and I wish the best to you and all your viewers, listeners. Thanks for listening. If you want to apply these principles into your life, 
Let's Talk. You can see the limited spaces that are open on my calendar at jimharshawjr.com slash apply, where you can sign up for a free one-time coaching call directly with me. And don't forget to grab your action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. And lastly, iTunes tends to suggest podcasts with more ratings and reviews more often. You would totally make my day if you give me a rating and review. Those go a long way in helping me grow the podcast audience. Just open up your podcast app if you have an iPhone, do a search for success through failure, select it, and then scroll the whole way to the bottom where you can leave the podcast a rating and a review. Now, I hope this isn't just another podcast episode for you. I hope you take action on what you learned here today. Good luck and thanks for listening.